Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Hi. Welcome to Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution, podcast number four. Andrew with me, producer Andrew. I feel like the roots, you know, and Jimmy Fallon, where they count off the number of each show as we go along. Yes. Number four. Number four. This week, it's all going to be about Sgt. Pepper's, the 50th anniversary of the album that changed the world. And the contrarians and Beatles fans will say, well, you know, Revolver really was more of a ground-changing, like, no, it wasn't. Revolver was amazing. But every single person who ever loved music in the free world and behind the Iron Curtain didn't buy Revolver. That's what this album did. It's incredible. There's a great quote. There's a show coming on CBS, on the PBS, a special this weekend. Jeff Emmerich was 21 years old in 67. He was the engineer. And it's one. people say, who are your favorite interviews? You know, Pete Townsend, whatever. No, Jeff Emmerich was one of my favorite interviews. He's 21 years old. He's just barely out of high school. And the first day, John walked into the control room and said, we're never going to tour again. We're going to make an album that's got sounds on it and things on it that no one's ever heard before. You're 21-year-old engineer, and John Lennon gives you your marching orders, and you say, okay, that's cool. Let's do it. And he always said if he was older and more experienced, he wouldn't have done all the crazy things. He put microphones where nobody had ever put microphones before. Uh, the Beatles wanted a different sound on every single song. Never mic a piano the same way twice, which sounds absurd, but look what we wind up with, this incredible work. And for the first time that you've ever really heard it is we're finally hearing it in this remastered version that Giles Martin, as he said, I didn't add anything to it. I didn't re-engineer it. I simply took the original tapes that were brilliant and try to follow their lead, and this is the first time you're really hearing what my dad and the guys wanted to do. Producer Andrew, have you heard it? I heard it. I listened to it twice yesterday. I listened to it twice today, and then I made a playlist today with the old stereo version and the new one to compare it, and the the difference is pretty astonishing. You know, everybody says it's a cash grab I really don't think it is. Yeah, they're going to make a lot of money from this, and they've remastered it before. They've re-released it before. Well, I always get the better copy, but this is different. You know, this isn't the rap version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This is the closest we'll ever have to what the original sounds like. The the voices, John's voice especially, sounds three-dimensional to me. Um, If you listen to the through line of it, Ringo's hi-hat and Paul McCartney's bass are the biggest distinctions. I almost feel like we never heard that hi-hat and the bass before, and that's what drives every song. That's the through line to me. You're a bass player. Do you hear what I'm talking about? You know, one of the things that I that occurred to me today when I was listening to a previous mix of the album was um, it was a good-sounding album. 
Right. The, the Beatles never did anything that didn't sound great, that didn't sound timeless. But they've just they've just turned it up with this new um, this new release, and I don't mean volume wise. I just mean it sounds like it, a modern album. Oh, without of- a doubt, like it was recorded today. That's how high the quality was. And remember, four track recording. When you hear Bohemian Rhapsody, it's that's you know thirty two tracks where you get to ping pong everything. A four-track recorder was actually fancy, and EMI was so cheap, as Ringo said, they bought the first four-track machine. They didn't buy the plug that goes to it, so they had it, and they couldn't plug it in because it needed a special plug. That's EMI. Uh, now they certainly get it, that's for sure. But even in 67, you know, the, the idea of a four-track machine was very simple when you recorded in 67. You have four tracks on the one tape. Track one is for the vocals. Track two is for the backing vocals. Track three is for the instruments. And track four is for the drums so it wouldn't bleed through. Very simple to make an album in one day. And the Beatles took five months to do this thing, which was unheard of. That's like five years in today's day and age. Yeah, and I can only imagine how expensive. Um, and, and you mentioned the production of the album, how they, the idea of it, the concept was to do something that no one had ever heard before. And the Beatles, much of the technology they used was built for them in order to accomplish their goals. And that happened over and over again in their career. Or, you know, they would make it up as they go. Uh, for instance, the benefit for Mr. Kite or trying to get, the, if, that's a perfect example. John Lennon saying, let's bring in some, let's record this harmonium and all these organs, and we'll chop it up and throw it on the floor, and then we'll piece it together any which way and just see what it sounds like. And as George Martin said, my first thought was, well, that seems like a stupid waste of time. But my second thought was, well, why not? Let's see what happens. And to me, a lot of times, genius comes from simply one sentence, which is, why not? And you get a sound that's absolutely amazing. Let's Let's, you want to give a quick listen to Benefit from Mr. Kite? Yeah. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there. Later, Pablo Bank is there. What a scene. I've always felt that Paul McCartney's bass, uh, he's a very musical player. His bass was always very present in all the Beatles mixes, um, but this this remix has made it thunderous. I was listening to this album in the car, and I never thought I would be rattled to the bone <laughs> right. by a Beatles song. And you song. are. Good morning, good morning. It's a symphony. He's playing like John Entwistle. And can I just say, when you're in a groove, so here's this poster that John Lennon sees in an antique store in Kent. While they're shooting the video for Strawberry Fields Forever, Pablo Fanke's Circus, the first black circus owner. And it's just got the list of what the acts are. And you make this incredible. When you're locked in, you, you just, good morning, good morning. It's a commercial for Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Yep, there's a song. Oh, there's a cloud. There's a song. Hey, here's some tea. There's a song. <laughs> Wait, the thing is, people say they're looking for good songs. And Keith Richards always described it as having your antenna up. If your antenna is down, a thousand great ideas just went by you and you didn't see them. But when you're Beatles in 1967, you slip if you put your shoe on. If you don't put your shoe on, the doorbell rings. Oh, there's an idea for a song. (laughs) 
when you just locked in. The joke was, as Donovan said, in the late 60s, he said the joke between musicians was that if Paul tripped in his music room and fell into the instruments, by the time he stood up, he had a hit song. <laughs> as Don said, I've got five amazing songs. Eric Clapton has 20. What did he do to get hundreds? Who gets hundreds? Paul McCartney does. His One of his quotes, and we've played it on the air at Q1043, uh, is he said, you know, we were just bored with making Beatle albums, so we wanted to do something different. So I thought, like, and I'm like, wait, stop, stop. Do you hear what you just said? You were bored making Beatles albums? That was boring to you to make the greatest albums anybody had? Yeah, because we had to do something different. So he's flying from America with, you know, his buddy there, Rody Mal, and Mal says, hey, pass the salt and pepper. He said, what, Sergeant Pepper? And something that innocent, that crazy, gives you the name. Wow. And now we have all these hipster names, you know, Black Crow Medicine Show. Like he said, it was just a crazy thing. These will be our alternate egos. And for people who say, well, you know, it's not a theme album. It's not really a concept album the way Tommy is, an al- is a concept album. The way the story of Jimmy is on Quadrophenia or the Moody Blues. And that's absolutely true. But it is thematic in the sense that They said, we don't have to write songs like us. Write the songs that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would write. So it could be an old-timey song like When I'm 64, because that could be one of the band's songs. And John said his guy's psychedelic. And George Harrison said his guy is Indian. And we can do Within You Without You and have all Indian musicians on it, because that's what the Sgt. Pepper Band would write and play. And that's just a phenomenal idea. You're at the height of your career, and basically you've broken up the Beatles to become Sgt. Pepper. That's just never been done before or since. Can you? I mean, Marshall Mathers' album. Sorry, it sounded just like the same guy. You know, suddenly, you know, Beyonce isn't going to make a different album. You know what? In a crazy way, and not that I'm her biggest fan, but Lady Gaga does that a little. And Trish yeah, tries to truly right change that. it up. And I'm being honest. Now, whether you like it or not, she's always trying to change stuff. And she changes everything. She changes her whole look for right. whatever album she's doing. It's very thematic. Well, but the interesting thing about Sgt. Pepper, and I was talking about this to some friends last night, I've never really been able to name my favorite song on it. I've always said, oh, I love Sgt. Pepper. And then if you ask me what's your favorite track, I say uh, Mr. Kite or um, A Day in the Life. or It's, it's the always Sky. a day in the life to me. For, for me, it's just an album. If I, yes. if I hear any part of it, I just want to hear the whole thing. The album is a song to me. You know, A Day in the Life, we, we never talk about Tara Brown. Do you know who Tara Brown is? No. It's a great trivia question. Tara Brown was the Guinness Brewery heir who was killed when he crashed his Lotus sports car on a southwest London street, December of 66. And Lennon told the story. He, he told, it was the Playboy interview. He said, I noticed two stories in the Daily Mail. One was about the Guinness Air, killed himself in a car, and on the next page was a story about 4,000 potholes in the streets of Blackburn, Lancashire, that needed to be filled. And like what we said before, Andrew, when you're that locked in, you're literally having tea, you have the Daily Mail, and you just say... Oh, the, the Guinness air was killed in a car. Oh, there's 4,000 holes. Wait, let me get a pen. And you, how would that ever lead to a song? And yet, it's this, this dreamy day in the life. It, it is exactly what the title is. It's a dreamy day in the life 
and Paul McCartney has this part, and you say, let's put the two of them together. But they don't have anything to do with each other. Well, we'll just do something in the middle, and you just, Mal, you just count it off, and we'll figure out something. And an alarm clock goes off that he was playing with that ruins the entire take. Ruins it. Yeah, An alarm clock goes off in the middle of while you're counting. One, two. And instead of saying, let's start all over again, again, genius is saying, no, that's it. The alarm clock, that's it. That's what we're using. I mean, to say yes to mistakes, I think that's the lesson creatively sometimes or whether you're creating an app, sometimes the mistake is the magic. You know, and that, that to me is always in rock and roll. And then just the first line of that song of A Day in the Life. Yeah. I read the news today, oh boy. Right. I mean, that's a timeless line if there ever was one. Every oh time God. I hear that, I just go, oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so I'm reading in the New York Times, John Perales, a great writer, uh, he analyzed it. And I want to talk about this for a second because I agree with a lot of it and some of it I don't. He wrote a half century after its release, the Beatles Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a relic of a vanished era. Like a Fabergé egg or a Persian miniature, it speaks of an irretrievable past when time moved differently, craftsmanship, craftsmanship involved bygone tools, and art was experienced more rarely with fewer distractions. I absolutely agree with that statement. He said it's an analog heirloom that's still resisting oblivion. Nice line. Because even in its moment, it was already contemplating a broader sweep of time. The music on Sgt. Pepper's reached back far before rock as well as out into the unmapped cosmos. While its words, sea song between Paul McCartney's affability and John Lennon's tartness, offered compassion for multiple generations. That, I can't top that. That's absolutely beautiful. And to me, 1967, I'm nine years old. And for all of us, first generation and maybe now, it's very intimate listening to it with my mom. Whenever I hear any song from this album, my mom's in the room listening to it with me. She was a big music fan. And unlike people of a previous generation, she loved Frank Sinatra, but she never stayed locked in her own time. She loved to move forward with everything. So she loved the Beatles. She explained to me what, what they were doing, and she never played an instrument. She said, listen to how this goes. Listen to how that goes. One of the first presents was a record player. And we always bought singles and we bought albums and we loved the Beatles. She's the one who called me in and say, hey, you've got to see these guys on Ed Sullivan when I was six years old. So we are all in. So she's, she's always in my heart, but she's alive and well. Whenever I listen to Pepper, that smile on her face, hearing this thing start with like, it started with like, we're waiting for the start of the album. You're waiting for the first notes. And instead of hearing the first notes, you hear this. You hear a crowd in the orchestra too. And on my first thought is, this is a live album. I didn't know this was a live album. It's Sgt. Pepper, and it's kind of sort of live. The crowd noise was a recording that George Martin had made. He made comedy albums. It was Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Beyond the Fringe Comedy Review in Cambridge, a live recording of that show. That's the crowd noise you hear that opens this incredible oh. album. I, I just Every detail of it is just beyond belief. And by the way, Jeff Emmerich, when we talk about cutting an album, nowadays it's digital. You hit cut, edit, control, paste. 
He cut this album. We used to cut on radio in the days. Like if I would cut your phone calls, we had a reel-to-reel tape and a razor blade and a grease pencil. Jeff didn't even have a cutting block. He had a pair of brass shears. And part of your job as an engineer was to practice making your 45-degree angle cuts, which had to be perfect so it would fit, like you would do in a, a joint on molding. So you would hold the tape up in the air after marking it, close one eye, and try to make a perfect 45-degree cut with your brass shears in midair because brass wouldn't become magnetized and it wouldn't hear a pop. And that's how he cut the Sgt. Pepper album with a pair of scissors. And where it didn't work perfectly, they would add crowd noise or you'd hear a laugh or you'd hear applause or something or a string section, and that would sort of blend in where it just didn't cut the right way they wanted. It's unbelievable. One of the other thoughts is, um, you know, they've included so many extras. They have, they have takes of songs, instrumental takes, vocal takes, right? In the special edition, and you really get an idea of what the um, the skeletons of these songs are like because there's so much going on in the final production of the album. What was actually released to the public? There's parts where, oh, that is a piano i didn't know that was even a oh oh, those are the chords now i hear it now i hear it and you think about you you mentioned it was five months to make the album bands today do not take five months to make albums it's not economical it it has nothing to do with them and and they're not creative enough to do it it's just they're not given that much time you come in with songs and if you have any special ideas you you make them happen as quickly as possible. Although, I mean, some of the big albums, you know, like Coldplay, I know set up at EMI Studios for like eight months to record an album. My friend Billy J. Kramer went to visit where he used to record his songs, you know, where the Beatles recorded with George Martin, and he stopped into the Abbey Road Studios and walked into Studio Two, and the entire, he said, the entire thing was filled with gear. And so what's all this? He said, that's Coldplay. He goes, but what's all this stuff? He goes, that's their gear. He said, they're storing it here? He goes, no, they use it to make an album. Like, what are you, crazy? He goes, how long have they been here? He says, five months. He said, five months, we had recorded an album, toured, recorded the second album, and we're back out again. Why would it take you? He said, I just couldn't. Why would it take you five months? Don't you know what you want to do? What could take five months? It was just astounding. Like, what do you record, like, one note a day? (laughs) And and just the speed of how they were working back then, you wouldn't think of it. it. It was inconceivable to take five months. And everybody was rumored to say, Beatles are finished. All the press in the London were saying, Beatles are finished. Beatles are finished. After Revolver, Beatles are finished. And they always wanted an answer. And Brian Epstein wanted an answer. Everybody wanted an answer. And Paul McCartney was the one who said, don't say a word. All I walked around with, I read the papers, and all I kept thinking to myself was, you just wait. You just wait. And, you know, you say it's cocky, it's arrogance, it's pushy. But as the old baseball pitcher Dizzy Dean used to say, it ain't bragging if you can do it. And the Beatles sure did it. The John Perales article in the New York Times, he writes, Sergeant Pepper has been analyzed, researched, oral historyed, and dissected down to the minute differences between pressings because the Beatles industry never misses an anniversary. The 50th anniversary deluxe version is exhaustive. That sounds dismissive. But it's absolutely brilliant. There are five different versions of it. Uh, The deluxe has been remastered. So you've got, in the deluxe version, 
you've got Giles Martin reimagining the stereo that wasn't really done well. It was done quickly following the original guide. The mono was always the best one, but this is the stereo that follows the balances of what the mono version was. In 1967, who was spending time to worry about the stereo version when hardly anyone, especially in Britain, had a stereo? So in the deluxe edition, you get both. You get the vinyl album. You get the stereo mix. You get the mono mix. You get the 5.1 surround sound, Blu-ray, and I've been listening to all of it, and I absolutely love it. Plus, the reading material, the booklet, you get the cutouts and the pop-ups that came along with it. That, that's what it was. They, you, you had the original Pablo, a recreation of Pablo Fanky poster for the benefit of Mr. Kite. As Perales writes, Sergeant Pepper was not universally adored when it appeared. The New York Times panned it. The New York Times panned Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band when it came out. He said, not entirely incorrectly, as busy, hip, and cluttered. It is busy, yes. It's incredibly hip, but it is not cluttered. That's cluttered means there's too much stuff in it. If you think there are too many things going on in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you haven't listened to it. He said, Sgt. Pepper's three years has been in terms embraced, reviled, and simply ignored. No, no, it has never been ignored. He says, now that rock itself is being shunted towards the fringes of pop, not true, has nothing to do with pop music, rock is rock, let's free Sgt. Pepper from the burden of either forecasting rock's eclectic future or pointing towards a fussy dead end. It doesn't have to be the most important rock and roll album ever made, as Rolling Stone said. It's somewhere in between, juxtaposing the profound and the merely clever. Uh, again, this is Perales in the New York Times. He said, it was the beginning of the summer of love. It was a time of prosperity, naive optimism, and giddy discovery when the first baby boomers were just reaching their 20s and mind-expanding drugs had their most benign reputation. And that's absolutely correct. LSD and pot were not meant just to escape. They were meant to go further, to get a deeper understanding of the world. People wrote under the influence of drugs to try to write deeper, to try to reach out to God, to the unknown, listen to every song that John Lennon was doing at that time. It was to float away, but to also get a deeper understanding of it all. As Perales writes about the Beatles, they rejected any generation gap. The album cover set the 67 Beatles with their mustaches and shiny mock band uniforms along their suited mop-top pop star wax statues. And that's exactly what I thought when I looked at the album cover the first time. Oh, there were the Liverpool Beatles. There were the 64 Beatles. And here are the 67 Beatles as if the original 64 Beatles were, were a relic of the age. That's how fast they were moving. And that to me is unbelievable. Producer Andrew who's much younger than me, uh, when I first got the album, before I even listened to it, I remember just staring at the cover and just looking at it, trying to figure out what is this staying? Here's Muhammad Ali and W.C. Fields and Mae West and the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Edgar Allan Poe and a doll that says, Welcome the Rolling Stones. I just, like, it's as if it's all of life. Everything that we could think of that's public culture and i didn't know who these people were then you open the album and you get the guide to explain who all these people were and alistair crowley is on there as well so there's dark and there's light you know john lennon wanted adolf hitler on the cover he said you know it's it's a figure it's it's about powerful figures and the guys were able to talk him out of that that was probably a good move yeah. 
I mean, we'd already just gone through the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. We really don't need to talk about this for another year, John. Right. Why'd you put Hitler on the cover? I just wanted to see it. I wanted to, you know, it's just like flicking you in the nose. It's John Lennon going, do it. Just, yeah, sit sit with that, brother. What do you think? But I I looked at that cover like a half hour, and I'm a kid thinking, I got to learn this cover before I listen to it. Somehow, like, that that was the prologue to the album. And you get into it. And, it, it, you know, at first you say, what is all this? And they didn't understand why on the second side you hear the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise. And then we find out later that's them in the studio playing live just to prove that they could do it, just to prove after all that time that they were still this amazing, amazing band that could play live. Um, Jeff Emmerich, their engineer, says, this is the last song to be recorded, Beatles in a Good Mood, uh, the assistant engineer, who's 18 years old, by the way, Richard Lush, says, The reprise, I remember it fondly. It was one of those special nights. They were playing great. They were all th- all there together, which didn't always happen. We were in a different studio. We are in the fancy studio, Studio One, the main classical studio. We built little houses for everybody to be close to each other. The vibe of them playing live was just fantastic. I wish there was a video of that somewhere. He said, They were about to go on holiday. We finished this masterpiece. And there was just a couple other songs in the White Album that were like that, but I'll never forget them just jamming out, being the Beatles live for one more minute. And that's the energy of Sgt. Pepper's reprise into this masterwork. As John Perales writes, the finale, A Day in the Life, the ethical and emotional ambiguities of a world perceived through mass media, even back when the news media was just newspapers, radio, and television. Um, It's the most powerful thing he wanted it to sound, the last chord was supposed to sound like an atomic bomb blowing up and ending the world. They have, it was a 40-piece orchestra, and there was talk of a 90-piece orchestra. John and Paul wanted a 90-piece orchestra, and George Martin, the producer, said, we can't afford that. Now, in 1964, nobody knows who they are, and in 1965, Britain is very thrifty and it's slow. By 1967 that your gross national export to the world for the country of Britain is probably the Beatles. And tea. It, Beatles and tea. And it's probably 50-50 of what's more important. You you couldn't get them a 90-piece orchestra for a day. That would be too expensive. To play one chord. <laughs> to play one chord, to play one session. That's too much money for you. Are you high? Are you people on glue? Why, why were you trying to save money on the Beatles recordings in 1967? It's still unfathomable to me. But, of course, it's Ringo who says, well, why don't we use the 40-piece orchestra twice? <laughs> and everybody looks at him and smiles, and that's why Ringo's the Yogi Bear of the Beatles. So they just double-tracked the 40-piece orchestra, and in a way it came out even better because it didn't sync up, and it was the cacophony they were looking at, Start at a low E and go all the way up to a high E. And as George Martin said, it's hard to say that to a bunch of professional musicians. They want to see a chart. They're not good at just saying, what? At what tempo? What? No, just play it. The other thing I love about this deluxe version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is that Giles Martin included a second CD, a second, even on the vinyl, if you will, of outtakes of things that we've never heard before. And I got a chance to talk with him about it. How'd you pick? What did you do? And he said, I didn't want to just do this. He, he was more polite than saying Beatle nerds. 
he said, what was his word? I didn't want to do this for just for the collectors, the extreme Beatle fans, meaning nerds, of which I consider myself part of that, that group to somewhat. He said, I didn't just want everyone to have all their outtakes so they could sit with it and never share it because I've got it. He said, it's supposed to be shared, but I wanted to give an example of how the guys were working, almost like a roadmap, a work tape, if you will, of how it went. When you open the deluxe set, producer Andrew, the, the box that holds it is a recreation of one of the tape boxes, of the Ampex tape boxes, with yellow tape on it and the handwritten things of what you have. And it's just, it's brilliant because that's what it is. It's a work in progress is kind of what he wanted to show. Let me give you a, a quick listen. This is... Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, take one. Here's what you get as an extra. Take one. Hello? Hello? Well, I, I might as well have that record in there as well. It doesn't go on the tape. Does it? Only on our cans. Oh, well. It will sound nice. Direct injection. I just love hearing how things come together. Is this direct injection, meaning DI box, meaning it's plugged right into the board. It's not going through an amplifier to get that wobbly sound of what they were doing and double tracking everything, recording it once, then recording it again, or a second recording of it that you wobble and screw around with the tape on which is just unbelievable. Screwing around with the piano itself. Jeff Emmerich said at one point for a piano, he put a microphone in an air duct underneath the piano in the floor, and that's the warbly thing you hear underneath it. Nobody had ever put microphones in places like that. He put adhesive tape on the capstans of the tape machine so that the tape itself would wobble as it was going through the machine. If any executive at EMI had seen that, he would have been fired. But they're kids. He's 21 years old. His assistant is 18. Who's there to say don't do it? Well, actually, that's genius. George Martin is the guy to say, boys, don't do that. And instead, he pretended not to see, (laughs) and look what you come up with. Again, just take that chance. Musically, creatively, he took the chance. And that's what I hear from the outtakes. Have you listened to the outtakes? I haven't listened to all of them. I listened to that. And hearing hearing the noodling, hearing... Uh, I guess it's Paul practicing that piano, or that electric piano yeah. part. That made me so happy just hearing those few, um, those few notes from the beginning of "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds." Yeah, because <laughs> because it's again, there's so much else that they heap on top of that. That's such a cool sound. Yeah, when when he, you know, as Perala says, it's 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 busy and cluttered. I don't hear clutter at all, because that's the reason I'm listening to it 50 years later, saying, "Wow, it's not cluttered. It's this jeweled thing that every as you clean it up, you see more and more jewels in it." And to me, it's not too busy because there's so much space in it. If you, cluttered me to me is like a dish that's served with too much stuff on it. No, but but. Food that's that fresh when you, you make it again and, and you clean it up and we get to hear every little detail of it. It's what makes me hear it again and again. Like we're talking about a day in the life as we get towards the end. 
and that last chord that's the end of the world. Here's uh, from the PBS special on the album. Uh, the song and the album famously finishes with one final massive E major chord. The assistant engineer, Richard Lush, said, We got every piano in the building into the studio and every person that could play the chord. Even people that couldn't play the piano were playing this chord to make it sound huge. Huge. I mean, there was no such thing as doing something normal on that track. That's a great line. He said, because the songs were so good, so memorable to record, it doesn't seem long ago. It doesn't seem like 50 years. 50 years is a long time, but it makes me feel older than I am. Jeff Emmerich, what a great line. I'm just proud of it, I guess, because of what it is. When we finished it, we knew that it was perfect and it was special. And I dare say there are very few people, musicians, painters, artists ever who can say we knew it was perfect. I've never said that about anything. Maybe Shakespeare knew it, but I doubt it. But we didn't know it was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger every week. Even in 50 years' time, I'm just proud of it, to be honest with you. That's all I can say. Man, if that's your, it's not a eulogy for it, but if that's a lasting statement that we knew it was perfect, but even we didn't know it would be this, man, (laughs) there's a reason it got the moniker greatest album of all time. I wonder how the Beatles would have reacted to him calling it perfect. I can't imagine John agreeing with him. No. Paul might say, yeah, it was pretty good. And John would say, nah, my voice was crap. Uh, I asked John, I said, give me a tidbit about your dad. Tell me something your dad told you. And because he kept playing with the very speed on this mix. A lot of times when we heard the old stereo version of Sgt. Pepper's, John's songs were at the wrong speed. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Giles said the tape box said plus 0.5%. And that's how it was on the mono, but when they did the stereo in a rush, nobody looked at the tape box, so we've always heard it a little too slow. So he said, so I'm following all the changes in speed that John did to his voice, and he had said to his dad years ago when his dad was alive, you know, his voice changes speed, and George Martin said, John was always screwing with his voice. He had a beautiful voice. And not, the re- I mean, the reason he was frustrated with John screwing out with his voice, because like us, he had a great voice. Everybody knew John Lennon had this great voice except for one person, and that was John Lennon. I think I was listening to uh, Fixing a Hole today, right. and I was listening to the old stereo mix and then the new one, and I had the old stereo mix playing before, and then the new one came on. Something sounded wrong really? uh, on the new mix, and I, I'm flipping back and forth in those first like four or eight bars, um, and I thought... Okay, wait, one of these is slower. Yeah. One of these intros is slower. And then it occurred to me, I, I don't think it is slower. I think the new mix, it's just cleaner. There's, there, there's less clutter. There's less noise. Right. I mean, as I said, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. And stops my mind from wandering where it will go. As an amateur drummer, I learned so much hearing. And you can really follow it, as opposed to just being a blend of the sounds. Now you can articulate every single instrument. Giles said when he was giving us a little talk about when he played it for us, he said, I asked him, Tell me, were you nervous playing it for Paul McCartney for the first time? He said, out in L.A., Paul's in Los Angeles, I'm going to Capitol Records. He said, I, I wasn't nervous because, you know, I'd been in touch with him all the way. It's not like 
worked in a vacuum. He said, you know what you're doing. Just follow follow what we did on the original tracks. You'll be fine. But if I had a question, I called him. So he said I wasn't really nervous. But on my way to the studio, one of the executives said to me, man, Ringo's drums are amazing. I, you know, I never heard the drums like that before. And I smiled and said, thank you, but I felt sick. And Josh said, my first thought is, oh, God, the drums are too loud. Goes, and then, like, you never want somebody, everybody to tell you, like, the drums sound great. That means you screwed up the balance. He said, and the next guy said, oh, man, Paul's bass is amazing. I went, oh, the whole rhythm section's too loud. I got I to gotta pull this back. It's not ready. He said, and thank God, the third person said, oh, man, the voices, the piano is unbelievable. Like, okay, if every instrument is louder than you've ever heard it before, then I did it right. Then I finally did it right. Yeah, and I don't think Paul's going to have a problem with the bass sound. <laughs> no, and it, I feel like almost like, you know, it was, uh, it, it sounds like John Entwistle suddenly on, you know, when we're listening to Quadrophenia, where the bass was always there, but now you can really pick out exactly what he was playing and how he was doing it. For a musician especially, get the deluxe version if you can, so you can hear and pick apart everything he's done and hear how they assemble it. It's almost like, here's the finished thing and here are the jigsaw puzzle pieces. And I love that about the deluxe set. I've spent the entire weekend with it. We're going, let's listen to this. No, let's let's follow the clues. You know, like, what is it, National Treasure, the Nicolas Cage thing? Okay, how'd they do this? Okay, then that came in. And you follow along with the book. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I would say as a musician who's going to do some recording this year, I feel like there's a lot to learn and I have a lot of studying to do um, just with this album um, and this this remix, remaster of it. It's really just inspiring. And I'll be honest with you, as a, as a what, a nine-year-old kid, the second side starts with Within You, Without You. And I just didn't get it. Like, this, how does this apply to Beatles music? This just wasn't Beatles music. This was an Indian thing. And I listened to it. And I just felt nothing because it was so far away from what I had expected to hear. And through the years, I put it on, and right, I get to be honest on the podcast, right? A lot of times I'd skip it when I was listening to it. I'd just, you know, go fast forward and go right from being for the benefit of Mr. Kite to when I'm 64. And now as I'm older and I start to hear all the musicianship in it, you realize it's not a Western song. It's an Eastern song. And the first time I heard it on this remix, where you can hear every instrument, doesn't matter whether it's a, an upright piano or a bass guitar, but you hear the sitar, you hear the separation of the violins and a cello playing along with these different instruments. I am absolutely in love with it. There's no song on this album that I think is it gets more of a lift from the polish that Charles Martin did on Within You, Without You. If you've never really grooved to that song before, wait till you hear it now. So that's our look back on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band 50 years ago, and it's as if it were written this morning, or certainly as it is recorded this morning. What Giles Martin did made it an absolute masterpiece to me. Congratulations to Giles, to his father, George, who I'm sure is looking down saying, well done. Well done. Because, again, he, I said to him secretly, did you ever do anything like that? Did you ever add something? Did you ever, you know, you trick something up? He said, I added absolutely nothing. I didn't paint a thing. 
All I did was clean up what was originally there, what the guys did. And remember, all this digital and sampling and 30 pieces. He said this was all done with basically six people. It was the four guys, my dad, the two engineers, and you know Jeff Emmerich and his assistant, and they brought in some classical musicians here and there. Uh, one, one thing that we should talk about that he said his dad always bothered. You know, he was the one day that Paul wanted to record She's Leaving Home. And his dad was working with another artist that day. And Paul couldn't wait one day to record it. Not one day. McCartney asked freelance producer Mike Leander to write the score. George was hurt but said he would produce it and do it. Sheila Bromberg, the harpist. Have you ever heard of Sheila Bromberg before? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not either. But she played the most famous harp in all of rock and roll. Good for her. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. Go grab the newly remastered Sgt. Pepper's 50th anniversary edition. You will love it.